0: Free City Church. If you don't know, my name is Casey, and I'm one of your pastors, and I am so excited to share this passage with you. We find ourselves in a day that many things are different, but really, so many things are still the same. Our mission hasn't changed one bit. We still exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That hasn't changed. We are still making disciples. It just looks slightly different in the mediums. We are preaching to a podcast. I have the coolest mic to prove it. Our our city groups are meeting on Zoom. Many of our groups have split to care for one another into smaller groups. But groups are still meeting. They're still meeting every week. Several of those groups have made pandemic buddies to keep up regular connection. And like before... Our groups with lots of kids are figuring out ways to do discussion without those kids being all over us. In some ways, it's like nothing has changed. And we are still urging you to get on the Bible reading plan. Read your Bible. Talk about what you're learning and pray. There's something else that is happening. We are learning a lot about ourselves in our relationships. For me, for example, turns out I am an extrovert and I suck at social distancing. If I spend too much time in my office by myself, it takes me to bad places. My soul feels like it is underwater and I am desperate to come up for air. The truth is I've always known that about myself, but now I know about it in a new, deeper way. See, others might be experiencing this moment very, very differently. I talked to one of my neighbors at the mailbox from six feet away in the open air, but I asked him how he was doing, and he said, turns out social distancing is right up his alley. That, that might have been a nice way of saying he didn't really want to talk to me anymore, but Christian, I want you to know, and I want you to hear this, there are people around you not sharing the same exact experience that you are. You see, some are feeling profound loneliness because they don't have families to come home to. Some are are being crippled with extra kid stress because of, of no school and trying to balance work. Some have lost their job and are scared to death. With added pressure and more time at home, you can bet domestic abuse is on the rise. With more isolation and loss of connection, porn is certainly ravaging people. Some marriages are being forced to deal with issues that busyness had covered up. If that is you, we are asking you to reach out, share your burdens with God and with God's people. Galatians 6 has always been true, but this moment highlights it. Galatians 6 says this, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him with a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. If you are caught, you don't get uncaught by acting like you're not caught. You get free by admitting that you are caught and asking for help from the outside. We all need help at different times. We all have burdens that we can't carry from time to time. Let the family of God in and let them help you. Let them pick you up. Don't do this alone. James 5, 16. It has always been true but there's just more that you might be seeing about yourself. James 5, 16, it says that, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. The Bible teaches that we grow through repentance. If this is exposing something in you, confess it. Confess it. Say, God, I am more fearful than I know. I am far more angrier than I knew. I am hurting my marriage with my selfishness far more than I knew. Confess it and ask for prayer. This is the first step in repentance turning and facing what is true and then looking to Jesus and letting the family of God in. Some right now are saying, Casey, I can handle this myself. Is that working? Has that worked in the past? Start now. Reach out. Admit. Say, I'm sorry. Admit your selfishness, your critical heart, your heavy despair. Don't wait. Waiting might make you a very different person on the other side of this. Waiting is changing you in ways that you can't see in the small moment to moment, but it is making an eternal difference upon you. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity talks about this. He writes, Every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses, into something a little different than it was before. And taking your life as a whole, with all the innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing into a heavenly creature or a hellish creature. Either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself, or else into one that is in the state of war and hatred with God and with its fellow creature and with itself. To be the one kind of creature is heaven. That is to say, joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. Each of us at each moment is progressing to one state or the other. With much up in the air and so much added pressure, we find things. That we have, that have always been in us, just coming to the surface. Now to the text. We are in a a series of Ephesians asking what the church is about. And we come to this text just to the second uh, time in the series. And we want to ask just one central question. What if this is a part of God's plan for you and me? Ephesians 1, 9 through 14 is about God's safe and certain plan for those who are in Jesus. Let me point out a few things of this text before we really get into it. First, verses 3 through 14 make one huge, long sentence in the original language. In the original language, it has 202 words. All modern translations divide it up. Why? Because the translators had freshman English teachers who would have deducted points for such a long compound sentence. But Mrs. Smith was wrong. And the Apostle Paul is right. This sentence is long, but it's long because Paul has much to say in one long breath. And it is an incredible sentence that leads us to incredible truth. So why why do I bring this up? I bring this up because breaking it up and trying to stay true to the original wording at the same time, it makes it easier to work with, but it kind of clouds the simple message that it has. And so if you're a grammarian, you know how to determine what a sentence is saying. You first identify the subject, and then you simplify the predicate. You remove all the other supportive clauses. So what is the subject? The subject is God. The subject is God the Father. Start with me in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the subject, God the Father, who has blessed us in Christ. God has blessed us in Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly place. This is what we talked about last week. Every spiritual blessing is already ours because of Jesus, even and then it goes on and it says, even as he, God the Father, still continue, shows us in him, Jesus, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, God the Father, And then it says, in love, he, God the Father, predestined us for adoption to himself, himself is still God the Father, as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, the subject his is still God the Father, so that the praise of his glorious grace, God the Father's glorious grace, with which he has blessed us, God the Father, has blessed us in the Beloved. God has blessed us in Jesus. Verse 7, in him, Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. It is through his blood that we gain redemption. That is saying Jesus is rich in grace and in wisdom and insight. In accuracy, he provides forgiveness for our sins through his substitutionary death upon the cross. Because Jesus is rich in grace, we are forgiven. We are forgiven because he suffered in our place. And and now we, we get to where we're actually starting. But the subject is still continuing. God the Father What is the subject? The subject is still God. It has been carried on by pronouns like he's and him's and himself. God is the person doing the action that is found in the predicate part of the sentence. So what is the predicate? It's easy to see in verse 9. And so it would say this, God is, we're adding that because it's been carried through all the he's and the hymns and the himself. God is, here we go, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Let's simplify that. God is making his plan in Jesus known. That's what this is saying. Paul is reminding us that because of the gospel, because of what Jesus did, we can feel safe in God's plan. There is a plan, and he wants us to be in it, to know about it, and to find courage because of it. And if that is true, then that plan even includes what we are experiencing today.
1: And it even
0: includes what we might experience tomorrow. I have two very simple points that I want to really drive home. The first point is going to be much, much longer. And it's just this. There is a plan. And knowing that that plan is there changes
1: everything. But there is a plan. And then the second point, which will be very, very quick. There's a way into that plan. And so let's get started.
0: We have, let's get started again. We have a lot of work to do. Ephesians 1, starting in verse 9. God, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, to sum up all things in Jesus, things in heaven and things on the earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works things according to the counsel of his will so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. The first thing, there is a plan. And I believe knowing that changes everything. Like Just even saying a plan, that, that brings some questions like, what kind of plan is this? We make plans all the time and they don't always pan out. Or, or they're bad plans. And, and, and they aren't executed right. Sometimes our plans are ridiculously contrived. They don't make sense. And sometimes good plans are laughably implemented. Like our efforts to apply them are inadequate to, to say the least. You know, I, in, in marriage, I've determined that I'm not very romantic. And, and that, that can be a problem. Um, And so before marriage, that can be a problem when you're trying to get a girl to marry you. I mean, it was for me. Like to this day, every romantic idea that I've ever had, I stole from another guy. And then I said, don't let our wives talk. So I've kind of determined what the key to romance is. I, I think the key to being romantic to the best that I can see is planning. Like, it's planning. I mean, it's also in the execution, but it's planning. Like, when you plan, you are saying, hey, listen, I was thinking about you. You are important to me. Yada, yada, yada romance. When Kinsey and I were dating, she worked a summer at Kanaka. I in my opinion, was trying to break us up. They wouldn't let us talk on the phone, and all the male counselors were mostly athletes who didn't have to wear shirts during the day. It was a very insecure time for me in our relationship. I could tell that she wanted me to write letters, and I mean a lot of letters, because she asked me to write letters. So I made a plan. I planned to write two letters a week. I saw them as marriage installments, several easy payments, setting up the hard payment of the engagement ring. I made a plan. And then I started to execute that plan but it didn't go so great. I sort of executed the plan. I executed the letter writing part fairly well. There was just one problem. I, for, I kept forgetting to mail the letters. So I ended up mailing bundles of letters. And just FYI, a bundle of letters are not nearly, that are late. A Bundles of letters that are late are not nearly as romantic as several letters coming in continuously, especially when they're ridiculously written. We found those not too long ago, and the letters are like this. Hey, uh, what's up? I miss you. I'm really busy. I like coffee now. I'm drinking coffee right now. That explains the coffee stains. Like, our plans fail all the time because they're either poorly contrived or they're poorly executed. But what about this plan? What about God's plan? Can I trust this plan? Can I trust this plan right now that includes this pandemic? That everyone, I mean, it's all over the board. Some people are suffering seriously right now. Some, it has barely
1: touched their lives. Can I trust this plan? See, God God doesn't make plans like us.
0: God's plans are perfectly contrived and perfectly executed. And he is at work when we don't see him working. Look, look back at verse nine. And at the beginning, it just said, God making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Like I want to point out these words, his will, his purpose set forth a plan. Those words are powerful words, but when those words are taken with verse 4, in the beginning of this long sentence, verse 4, before the foundation of the world. And then verse 5, he predestined. It instills more than a hopeful, well-thought-out plan. It is communicating certainty, a certain plan. Before the foundation of the world, he planned, he willed, he purposed, he set forth this is certain now i'm not going to go deeply into this but we live in this in this world where people have questioned at different times like is our future certain and established and firm and unyielding or is my future fluid and determined by my choices Like if you do a brief history lesson with that in mind, you're going to find things like Oedipus the king. You know, most ancients thought about the future. They thought about it as being predetermined, set, solid, almost maybe even inescapable. In Sophocles' uh, Oedipus the king, I read this in one of my capstone classes called Great Books. Oedipus was destined to kill his father and marry his mother. Awkward. So he did everything to avoid this fate, but all of his actions to avoid this fate, they were the very things that led him to this fate, and he did kill his dad and marry his mom.
1: See, they they believe futures were predetermined. They were solid. It was already established. But we, we typically don't think of a future like that.
0: See, we as Westerners in our country, we typically believe that our future is determined by choices and actions. If you make good choices and work hard, you will be successful. We think things like we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. Like these are the kind of ideas and ideals that we have. You know, th- this is what you see in, in Marty McFly and Doc Brown going back in time to fix his parents' future and to stop Biff Tannen from ruling the world. You know, you just need 1.21 gigawatts. This is what we believe. And, and so which is it? I mean, which one is it? Do I choose my future or is it determined? When God talks about his plan and the future and he talks about the beginning of it from the foundation of the world and he uses strong words like his will, his purpose set forth in a plan before the foundation of the world, he predestined. Is that just saying everything is predetermined and my choices mean nothing? Or is what we believe broadly that my choices and actions make my future? Which one is it? The Bible says both are true. And it says both are true very loudly. The Bible says your choices matter and you will be judged for them. And God is also completely in charge of your life and your future. And so that should give you great ambition to choose wisely and great comfort in disarray. Like, let me point you to just a few places in the scriptures that show both God's plan as certain and our choices as pertinent, as important. Now, there's many places, but just a couple. Like, in Acts 27... Paul was a prisoner and he had appealed to Rome to take his case all the way to Rome. And so it's late in the sailing season, but he is placed upon a boat in chains and they start to head toward Rome, but the sea is not cooperating. They come into storm after storm, devastating blow after devastating blow. The mass is broken. They start to unload all the cargo. People are giving up hope as they can't get to land. And they are adrift at sea. And then one night an angel appears to Paul. And the next day he encourages everything with what the angel said. He said, listen, the angel told me that I will appear in court. I will go
1: on trial in Rome and not one of you will be lost. And so People were encouraged.
0: But after a little bit, when things just didn't seem to get better, I mean, actually, what do preachers know about sailing anyways? So some of the sailors start to steal a lifeboat, and then Paul warns them. You can read about it. Actually, we said, Paul warns the guard, and he says, listen, if you don't stop that, you're not going to make it. The future, it demanded his action." The first part where it was like the angel said this would happen, their future was fixed. But then he said, "Your choices matter, and you need to act now. Your action or inaction will cause a very different circumstance for you." See Acts seventeen, it is both choices and God's plan that are bringing about the future. But you also see it in places like Isaiah ten and Romans nine. Both choices and God's plan are bringing about the future. How does that work out? I don't know. I don't know. I just know, and I'm telling you, if you read the scriptures, you will see that the Bible is loud on both ends. It's paradoxical in how it talks about it. It says that the future is certain. God has seen it. He has ordained it. He is in it, and your choices
1: matter, and you will be judged for them, but they matter. See, both of those things are true. I need to know that my choices matter because
0: I need to act. But if I believed that everything, if I believed that everything, for everything to go good, was up to my choices, it would be crushing.
1: Church, I've I had some moments over the last week where I have felt crushed. You know, I, I feel
0: like the message from all the Christian bloggers is like pastors, church, this is your time. This is your moment. And in my heart, I'm like, I've never done this before. What if I blow the moment? What if I blow it? I didn't take this class in seminary. I, I'm not real technologically savvy. Like I don't really like all those things. What if I blow it? What if I don't have the leadership for this moment? Like, I am an inspirational leader. I'm not a great organizational leader. Like, if it's all up to my choices, if it's all up to all that we can muster out of all of our leaders thinking, if it's all up to our choices, that is crushing.
1: This says our choices do matter. And we need to make good, reasonable, safe, generous choices and plans. But
0: they're not the only thing that matters. You see, knowing that God has determined an end, it makes me feel safe. See, I don't know if like this is the moment for the church. This is the next moment for our church. This is the next moment that God has asked us to be faithful and to steward and to trust. This is the next moment. This is the moment that we're in. This is the moment that led to to my new podcasting microphone. This is the next moment and God has determined the end and God is in this moment and every other moment. See, I sometimes need to know that the Bible says loudly that God is in charge and this text says God has a plan. Like focusing on this text, I want to I just want to show you what a predetermined plan controlled by the God who stepped out of his heavenly courts into the cesspool of sinful humanity to die in our place. I want to show you what that means for us. What it tells me, how it reminds me. And so first, verse 11. See, a plan reminds me that my future is secure. In verse 11, it says, in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. It says an inheritance. An inheritance is wealth that someone else acquired through their work, through his or her work. But a son gets it all just for being a son. He hasn't earned it, but yet he receives it because he is a son. Because of Jesus, you have obtained an inheritance. You have it; Nothing can touch it. That is secure. See, a plan reminds me that my future is secure. You have an inheritance because you are a son or daughter of God. You just get it. See, a plan also reminds me that I have hope when things look uncertain. Like, look at verse 10 with me. It says, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Unite all things in him? It, it, it means unite all things in him. It could be translated to sum up all things in Jesus. Like all things get summed up in him. You know, jump ahead to verse 11. It says this. Having been predestined, this is the end of 11, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be the praise of his glory. To to say that another way, it says God is working out everything according to his counsel, according to his wisdom, according to how he sees the best ends. And it will benefit those who hope in Jesus. Like it will work out to be a benefit. This is saying what Romans 8, 28 is saying just in a different
1: way. This is getting worked out both here on earth and in heaven. Like, that means, like, both here on earth, like,
0: look back. I mean, we we see that in verse 10 where it says things in heaven and things on earth. It's getting worked out in two different realms. That means so many things. But in its simplicity, we can only see some things that are happening. We don't get to see everything that's being worked out.
1: I, I think that means with certainty that if we could see it all, we would agree with God. It means that there
0: are things that we, we don't really see what are going on, but God is still at work. In 2 Kings chapter 6, the situation is this. Syria uh, had declared war upon Israel. Syria was a much more powerful army, and uh, they had declared war upon Israel, but they had a problem. You see, although they were the bigger and more powerful army, Israel had a prophet named Elisha. And Elisha was warning the king of Israel over and over how to avoid Syria. And so Syria can never line up and just have a straight up battle with Israel. So Syria declares war on Elisha. One morning in 2 Kings chapter 6, Elisha and his servant wake up in the morning and they look around and they are surrounded
1: by the Syrian army. Chariots and soldiers, weapons, everywhere, completely surrounded. So the servant looks at Elisha and he starts to freak out and he says, what are we going
0: to do? And then it says this in verse 16. He, Elisha, said, do not be afraid for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now you can imagine what the servant was thinking. Like, are you crazy, old man? It's just you and me. I didn't count, but they have far more than two. But then Elisha prayed and said, oh, Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. You see, God was doing something the servant couldn't see. And when he saw it, his fear vanished. And so that's saying the same thing. Like There was something going on in the heavenly realm that the servant couldn't see, but Elisha saw it. And when God opened their eyes, they could
1: see it. And then the servant agreed with God. If this has exposed fear, worry, selfishness, lack of faith, conflict, I mean, whatever, what might God be doing right now?
0: What might God be doing that you can't see right now? Like we should pray to have eyes to see it, like could it be a good plan for something greater than what I can see in my life
1: right now if your marriage is struggling because extra time is forcing you to face?
0: Some things, some some weak spots. Could it be that God is working to restore your marriage in incredible ways by forcing you to see it, by forcing it to the service? Maybe he doesn't want you to ignore it anymore. Maybe he is giving you time to work and pray and save your marriage. We have hope. When things look uncertain, because God is
1: orchestrating all things on earth and in heaven to bring about his perfect plan. See, a plan, it reminds me that my future is secure.
0: A plan reminds me that I have hope when things look uncertain because this text told me that's happening on heaven and earth. But a plan also reminds me that there is purpose in my circumstances. They aren't for nothing. This is not for nothing. There are purposes. God is accomplishing a purpose with redemptive history. He is accomplishing a purpose right now. How many times have you looked at circumstances in your life and thought, Man, my life has derailed. It is nowhere near right. God
1: couldn't be here. He would never do this. There is no way that God is in this. I mean, have you ever thought that? In Genesis 37 through 50, we learn about the life of Joseph. And it is such a fascinating story.
0: Yet Joseph was born to a dysfunctional family, His father, Jacob, suffered from the hands of a parents who had favorites. And he turns around and does the same thing. So Joseph was the youngest of 12 sons. He was clearly the favorite, and his brothers hated him for it. One day, Joseph was sent to go check on his brothers, kind of the youngest brother coming to spy on you, the tattletale gone bad. They saw him coming, and if you know the story, they saw him coming in his special robe that they didn't have. They saw him coming, and they decided to kill him. So when he got there, they seized him. They beat him, and then they threw him in a pit, and they sat down and ate dinner. How cold and terrifying is that? To be beaten, to think you might be killed, and then they just set you aside and have dinner. While they were eating, they looked up and some Midianite slave traders were going by and they thought, man, let's just sell him and make some money. We don't get paid if we kill him. Let's put him in a worse fate. Let's make him a slave. So they did. Joseph now finds himself a slave. In a distant land, in a strange place, he is a slave. But he decides to say, hey, my choices matter. So he starts to work hard and he gets promoted. And pretty soon, he is the most powerful slave in the house of Potiphar. Like he is telling the other servants and slaves what to do. But then he gets
1: wrongfully accused by Potiphar's wife. She accuses him of attempted rape. And then he finds himself in jail. Later in jail he interprets a dream for two of the men and the dreams
0: come true. He begs the one that was released to remember him and to help him get out, but he's forgotten. He's forgotten for over 2 years. After he was wrongfully accused and he's trying to be diligent and he begs someone that he helped out, please remember me. He is forgotten. Then Pharaoh has a dream that no one can interpret. Suddenly, Joseph finds himself in front of Pharaoh, becoming the prime minister of all of Egypt. For seven years, he leads administratively to bring in extra food for a seven-year famine that's coming. It's going to be so bad. In that
1: position, he saved his family and an entire nation from a devastating famine. Now, that, that
0: story, if you've read it, 13 chapters about the life of Joseph, like, I just have a couple of questions. How did God use Joseph to save others? Well, I mean, he used, if we look at the text, he used a broken family, a murderous plan from his brothers, a dry pit, a slave trader that bought him, wrongful accusation, a jail cell, and then being forgotten, and then a devastating famine. Or we could ask, how did Joseph come to see his suffering? Like, we get to see that. In Genesis 50, 20, he says this, and this is after his father, Jacob, had passed away. His brothers were scared. Uh, maybe that Joseph was just nice to us. Why, why dad was alive, but now maybe he's going to kill us. And so they come to him and he says this, as for you, Genesis 50, 20, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Do you see that? The brothers were guilty of wrong and murderous choices,
1: but at the same time, God used it for good, saving purposes. You see, We
0: see, once again, God using our culpable, liable choices that we will be judged for. He uses our choices to bring about
1: his sovereign plan, his sovereign good plan. But I have one more question. How do you think Joseph's prayers sounded? In his suffering. What do you think they sounded like? What do you think Joseph thought
0: about how God was answering his prayers in his suffering? You see, we sit down and we read his life in 13 chapters, but he lived it years and years. He lived it enough time to raise a whole family. He lived it. What do you think his prayer sounded like? Maybe like, God, don't let my brothers kill me. God, get me out of this pit. God, no, not slavery. God, please,
1: not jail. God, why did you leave me here forgotten? At any time, if you ask Joseph, is God answering your prayers? Don't you think he would have said no? Don't you think at moments he would have said, no, God is nowhere
0: near my life. Everything is awar. Everything is off. Everything is broken. But the truth from eternity's perspective, the truth that we can read is God was saving him. And God was saving him through a dry pit. And God was saving him through Midianite slave traders who took him away from an execution and God was saving him from wrongful accusation and a jail cell. He was saving him by being forgotten. He was saving him by a devastating famine. And God did that in Joseph's life to save not just him, but many
1: around him, a whole nation, Joseph's life it took so much longer to unfold than it
0: would take us to read 13 chapters. It certainly had moments of indecision. It certainly had moments of doubt. It certainly had moments of like just being upset and bitter and hurt and God all along creating from those moments and those situations of those struggles and those victories, creating a certain type of Joseph that would be ready for that time in in his plan. He was creating a Joseph that could lead
1: others to saving providence. There is a plan. There's a plan.
0: And in that plan, it reminds you that your future is secure because there is an inheritance. This says you have an inheritance if you are a son or daughter of God. This plan reminds you that you have hope when things look uncertain. This plan tells us that there is purpose in the present circumstances of your life.
1: And no matter what tomorrow can bring, there is a plan. And and now my second point, which is very, very short. I I know you hope it's very, very short. This tells us the way into that plan.
0: This tells us the gospel. There is a way into that plan. And in verses 13 and 14, it tells us you hear it and you believe it. The way I get into the saving plan of God is I hear a message. I hear the message of what Jesus has done for me. And then I believe it. I accept it. I make it authoritative in my life. When other circumstances seem heavy, I say this is a more weighty reality in my life. Listen to verse 13. It says, In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, So we hear the truth about the good news of how we can be saved. That's what that means, the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. The way you enter the plan is first you hear the good truth, the true words about what has been done, the good words about how you can be saved. And the way that you can be saved is you look at the life of Jesus. So you hear a message. You hear the gospel message. It goes on. It says, and believed in him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. We see it
1: again until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Did you hear how we get in? Do, do you see how the gospel works? When you heard the
0: word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed, it says you were sealed in Jesus. The main verb of that sentence is you were sealed. Now, I just say that because that means it's the only verb that can stand alone. So ultimately, it's saying, like, in your hearing and in your believing, you have been sealed. You have been sealed. Jesus has sealed you.
1: For all who hear and believe that Jesus was God who entered into humanity, that he died in our
0: place upon a Roman cross and rose again, Jesus has sealed
1: them into the glorious saving plan of God. Your future is certain. You are safe in the plan
0: of God, even in a day like today. Even when conflict is in my home. Even when uncertainty is ravaging my heart. Even when things feel crushing. Even when sickness comes. There is certainty because you have been sealed.
1: If you have heard the word of truth and you have believed it, the Bible says you have been sealed into the saving plan of God, which is working for your glorious praise to be a part of that. That's a truth that that I needed to be reminded of this week it's
0: not all up to my choices. My choices matter, but it's not all up to my choices. That I can be a part of affecting things, but that I have a God who has from the beginning has looked across the spans of time and he has seen the end and he has declared it to be for his glory and for my good. And if he sees the end and the end is for his
1: glory and my good, that means he has seen today. And I can have great confidence that a God is willing to lay down his life for me won't forget this moment. That's a truth for us, and it's a truth that we need to share with others. Free City, I love you more than
0: you know, and I eagerly anticipate that coming Sunday morning when we will gather together again and praise Jesus with our collective voices. Even now, Jesus is good. Even now, it may be especially now, the church is alive and at work because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Free City Church, we exist to extend the
1: glory of God by making disciples through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'll see you soon.